Genesis 17. Starting at verse 1. Reading through the end of the passage. Way at the beginning of scripture. So Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, as if that wasn't enough, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Abraham laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Then Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. Just laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. 
When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. It was on that very day that Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them, as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. His son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. So why are we starting here? If we're talking about baptism, why not go straight to the end of Matthew's gospel? with Jesus' words to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That seems like a pretty good place to start. Or we could even do the baptism of Jesus himself by John in the Jordan. I mean, there's lots to unpack there. There's, There's lots to work with. There's lots to teach from there, to learn about baptism. Or, you know, why not start literally anywhere else in Scripture rather than here? (laughs) Pastor John's laugh with the loudest. We talked about this passage before starting the series with it. Why Genesis 17? Which is what we had to discuss and talk about. Why do we start teaching and talking and exploring baptism in a passage about flesh, blood, covenant, and a bunch of squirmy men under the knife? Why are we starting here? The answer is that that is where our form for baptism starts. Every baptism here at Community CRC, we listen to the promises of God confirmed to us in our baptism. It is a long list of promises that are rooted in Scripture, and the very first one, the one that launches that list of promises to us in baptism, is Genesis 17:7. This story of Abraham, this covenant story, this kind of uncomfortable story is where it starts. It starts with the Lord making a great promise to a very old man, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. That is the first promise in our form as we seek to understand what baptism means. So why are, we, why are we starting here? Because there is more for us to learn about who we are, who God is, and what our baptism means that makes it worthwhile being a little uncomfortable for a few minutes. Because God's promises for us in baptism start in this story, in Abram's story. If you flip over, if you still have your Bibles open, we just read from Genesis 17. But you can flip over, go back to Genesis 12, just a few pages, it doesn't take us that long, right? For us, it's just a matter of a few chapters, a few verses, that time passes, that we get the whole story. But for Abraham, we're talking decades 
from Genesis 12 where God first came to, to Abram and said, um, you're going to leave what you know and you're going to follow me and I'm going to be your God. And Abraham said yes. That's decades ago. And then in Genesis 15, God comes to Abram again and, and affirms that covenant, affirms that promise, affirms again that he will be his God and you will be my people and I will make you a father of many. Except that time it happens with animal sacrifice and prophecy and again in the middle of the night. Abraham always has these encounters with God in the middle of the night. So it's been 13 years since Abram has last had a conversation with God like that. Since God first appeared in his life for the second time. 13 years. In that time, things have been going really well for Abram. His son, Ishmael, the son he had by Hagar, his wife's Egyptian slave, he's growing strong. Because of the last time, in the middle of the night, when God came to him and said, I'm going to make you a people of many, many nations, Sarah and Abram got busy. Sarah couldn't have a child, so Sarah offered Abram her maidservant, Hagar. Have a child with her. And so they did. And Ishmael is now 13 years old. And Abram, this is how Abram's going to help God keep his promise. Because he can't have a child with Sarah, so Abram's making it work. Abram's making it happen. And Ishmael is making him proud. He is a strong 13-year-old who, who's likely to grow into a good, strong man. And for Abram, it's causing a little family conflict. But, you know, Sarah and Hagar are getting along as best as can be hoped, just like any other normal family in Canaan at the time, multiple wives and concubines. It's okay. Abram had things figured out, more or less. He understood how these divine promises were going to come about. Ishmael was his son. He was promised many descendants, so Ishmael was going to be the focus of that promise. He was keeping his side of the bargain for God, his side of the promises. Abram's future, his family's future, for generations was bright, and he saw how it was going to unfold. Through Ishmael, he would have a big and beautiful family, claimed and marked by God. At the ripe old age of 99, Abram had the whole faith thing more or less figured out. He had it. But in our chapter this morning, Abram is going about his life, doing what he could to ensure that God's promises came true, proud of his son Ishmael, certain of his future, managing his life pretty well, he thought. But then God shows up again and just upturns his life in one single conversation. Did you notice that as we read this, that it's almost a monologue? Like Abram, 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 Abraham gets very little time. It's, it's, it's God speaking, and then the, the, the narrative will take a pause and say, and then God said, as if God had stopped for a breath and was going to continue on. But this whole chapter is like one monologue, one one-sided conversation with God, of God just spilling forth these promises and hopes onto Abram. Promise after promise after promise. 
It's almost unending. It's just this continual flow of things that God will do for him. I will establish my covenant with you for generations to come. It will be everlasting. I will give you the whole land of Canaan in which you now live as a foreigner. It will be yours and for you and your generations to come. I will make you a father of many nations. In fact, Abram's not your name anymore. That meant father, exalted father, but you're going to be the father of many. So now you're Abraham. That's your new name. I hope you like it. Actually, I don't care if you like it. That's your name. I will bless Sarah, your wife. Her name's also different. I'm not going to tell you why because it means the exact same thing as the other one, but it doesn't matter. She also gets a new name. She will bear you a son. Your, your 90-year-old wife is going to bear you a son. And she will be a mother of kings. And I will be your God, Abraham. I will be your God. I will be the God of your children and their children and their children and their children. And I will protect you. I will be your God. Abram, who's now Abraham has this whirlwind of promises swirl around him. And what does he do? He falls face down into the dust, into the dirt. And what does he do? What does this newly named Abraham do? He laughs. He laughs. Because it's all just a little too good to be true. A child with Sarah, Sarah, that will have to be, he'll have to get used to that, They're two senior citizens, even by his standards. A child? Come on, that's absolutely absurd. I have a child. And and Abraham laughs, and then he's he's thinking, you know what, God, I've got these promises managed. I've got this. I'm going to bring God's promises back down to reality. Because I have Ishmael. You've seen Ishmael, right? God, my, my good, strong boy with Hagar, he, he'll do, don't you think? And what I love the detail in the story is that we're told that Abraham laughs to himself. <laughs> As if when you are in conversation with God, you can keep anything to yourself. God hears his laughter because God, and he knows his heart. He knows his doubts, he knows his fears, he knows his love of Ishmael. And God responds to both the spoken question that Abraham poses to him, but also to the cause of his laughter. God says, Ishmael will be taken care of, Abraham. I have heard you, his father, I've heard Hagar, his mother, I've heard your prayers. I will bless him. I will make him strong and powerful. Don't worry about Hagar's son. But Ishmael is not the covenant child. Abram, you and Sarah will have a child named Laughter. And through this boy, this son of Laughter, I will fulfill my promises to you and to your family for generations to come. At the age of 99, Abraham thought he had this whole faith thing figured out. But one conversation with God, one encounter, he's on his face, on the ground, laughing to himself in disbelief, disbelief as God just pours upon him promise after promise, hope upon hope, grace upon grace. Reframing his entire life, by the way. 
Even his name is not left untouched. Everything changes, his name, his hope, his body, his future. God shows up and changes this old man's life and expectations again. But we're not done yet. Because to top it all off, God gives Abraham not only a new name and a litany of promises, but a sign of this relationship. A sign of these promises, a sign of this covenant that he is making with Abraham. A sign of flesh and blood and body. And what's What's interesting is it's an invisible sign to most. It's not something you're going to see every day that marks you as distinct to others. It's an invisible sign. A constant reminder for Abraham of who he is and whose he is. And Abraham wastes no time fulfilling this obligation. I, don't, I can't imagine what the conversation was like when he went to his household, to his people. But with a cut of a knife, Abraham, his sons, every man and boy in his household, slaves and free, were marked on their body with a reminder of whose they are and who they are. Our baptism practices seem a little tame in comparison. There's no knife and blood and pain like there was for Abraham's covenant sign. I mean, think, think about it. Just think about our sign. Think about baptism. We have a little water, like quite, quite a little amount of water, and, and we make sure it's warm. It's not too cold, not too hot. We don't want the baby to cry or squirm too much, right? We want to make it a pleasant experience for this tiny creature who does not understand what is happening to her. And we all dress up, right? Especially the parents who have to get up here in front of everybody. The minister says a bunch of really nice sounding words. We say things back to each other. We ooh and ah over the projected baby photo. And then we eat soup and buns afterward, maybe in the gym or at a grandparent's house. Nothing too crazy. Nothing too scary. Nothing compared to old Abe and his knife. As a minister, I'm actually a little envious. As a Protestant minister, I'm a little envious of our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters who, in their Christian tradition, um, <clears throat> definitely win the whole extreme baptism practice. Because for them, the, the priest, takes the baby, naked, comes over to the font, which is significantly bigger than ours, takes this often, because it's cold, this naked baby, and dunks it three times. Fully immersed in the water, up. Immersed in the water, up. Immersed in the water, up. And sometimes, I think this is more in uh, 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 Russian ones, upside down, head in, back out. Upside down, head in, back out. As a parent, that terrifies me. I am grateful that when Rosie was baptized right here, it was sprinkles 
in kindness, and my child was not dunked three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But as a minister, I'm envious. Because there is something about that practice of baptism that strikes us as risky and dangerous, as odd and strange. It makes your heart just go a little bit faster for that baby. But there's very little about our baptismal practices, about our lovely picture and our lovely font, that strikes us as odd or strange or risky or even just slightly dangerous. Except maybe if you give it to the minister and you're terrified, the minister will drop your child. That's the only time that it's risky. But what our baptism signifies, what our baptism points us to, is no less strange or odd or even slightly terrifying as it was for Abraham in his sign of circumcision. Because both circumcision and baptism point us as a sign of our relationship to the living God. A sign of covenant, of promises, of relationship with God. Which reminds me of the moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the Pevensey children are in Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's home. And they're hearing about Aslan for the first time. Aslan is the Christ figure in the Narnia series. And they're sitting having dinner, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And they hear about Aslan for the first time, this king. And they had made the not surprising mistake to think that this king was a man. And, and Mr. Beaver is <laughs>, laughs at that and says, it's a lion. The great lion, a good lion, but a lion. And Susan, who was always the eminently practical one of the four siblings, pipes up and says, is he safe? I, I mean, I, I shall feel quite nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver looks shocked at the question. Safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, and he is good. Circumcision, baptism, blood or water are signs of being in relationship and covenant with the living God. Maker of heaven and earth. And that shouldn't always feel safe. It shouldn't always feel easy. And it shouldn't always feel nice. If you've been traveling with us in the evening series, we've been going through the story of Job. And if anyone's story shows us the complexities of living in relationship with God, Job's does. Our own lives do. We too quickly forget the oddness of all of this. The strangeness of, of what we do and what we believe about who we are 
and about whose we are. We let it grow tame so that there's no longer anything strange or odd or risky or even just a little bit dangerous. Because we've got a handle on this whole faith thing, right? We've got it figured out more or less, just like Abram. We've been managing our lives quite well. Nothing much needs to change in our lives. We're quite comfortable with how they are. We've got this. And church is a lovely thing. That is until God shows up when we think we have it all figured out. When God shows up and upends our lives with crazy promises and difficult callings and challenging invitations to trust and believe when the circumstances don't really meet up with that. Because when you live in relationship with God, that's what you signed up for. Not that we're safe, but that we're held by a good God who keeps his promises no matter the cost. Being baptized in the name of the one who walked to a cross should not be particularly comfortable or easy. In baptism, God makes promises to us. God makes promises to his people. God says, I will forgive your sins for the sake of my son and remember them no more. I will remain faithful to you even when you are not over and over and over again. I will give you the Holy Spirit as a sign of assurance and presence in your life to guide you. I will give you life. I will give you more life. I will give you life that not even death can touch. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And I will love you. Does that seem normal? Because I hope that there's a certain reaction that we have like Abraham's where he falls down and laughs because of the sheer overwhelming goodness of it all. The absurd, overwhelming goodness of it all. The undeserved grace of it all. That behind the sign of water on a squirming baby's forehead stand all the promises of God from creation to new creation. That behind the spoken vows that we all say to one another, committing our love and our prayers, and we say that as a, as a motley crew of people who do and do not know each other, may like or not like each other, we just happen to sit in the same pews in the same place in Kitchener, Ontario, that behind that is the reality of God's loved, called, gathered, and sent people whom he loves. And that behind the well-dressed and nervous parents at a baptism, behind the words of a minister who's still half distracted by a busy week, is the reality of God coming to us. 
in water and word to declare yet again that he is our God and we are his people. (laughs) In just a few minutes, Haley Top is going to come and stand in front of you all. She is ready to profess her faith in Jesus Christ. To affirm the promises that God made to her in her baptism. To commit herself to living a life of gratitude in response to these promises. Making a vow to live a life of faith by trusting who God is for her as a baptized daughter of God. And for Haley to stand up here and profess her faith, for any of us to stand and profess our faith, is only possible because of the promises of God confirmed to us in our baptism. This wet sign of relationship, of covenant, of love, of grace, and nothing that we do, nothing that we deserve, nothing that we are capable of making true for us apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Baptism is a huge topic. Baptism is multi-layered. Baptism weaves and connects all of our stories together into the big story of God's people. And we're going to explore that together over the next few weeks. We're going to wrestle with what the promises of baptism mean for all of us. What they mean for each of us. as we journey towards Easter together, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who went to the cross to keep covenant with us. So my charge to you this Lent, my charge to you over the next few weeks, is to remember that you are a baptized child of God. Remember whose you are. Remember that you are loved by our covenant God who keeps his promises no matter what and no matter the cost. You are a baptized child of God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Our covenant God, our faithful God, we come before you as your people, thankful for our relationship with you made possible by Jesus Christ. Thank you that you claim us, mark us as your children, 
as your people. We thank you for your promises to us. We thank you that they hold true even when we do not hold on to them. We think this is all absurd. You stand faithful because you can do nothing else for you are our faithful God. As we live into our baptism, as we remember who we are, help us through your spirit to look more and more like Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for extending your relationship, your covenant to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.